James is an interesting book. Martin Luther didn't like the book of James. A lot of talk about works with the book of James. Martin Luther did not. He, when he ordered the books of the Bible, he put James at the back like an appendix. Like, you know, referred to if necessary. So there was some question about the inclusion of James in the canon of Scripture. Some of the ancient church fathers, like Origen, like, didn't mention James too much. Like, who is this James? Is it, you know, is it really the brother of Jesus? Did someone collect some of his sayings and sort of patch them together? So there was some question about James. And yet when you read it, you do get that that taste of Jesus. I think it was his brother. You know how sometimes siblings who are singers create amazing harmonies? I kind of feel like that with James and Jesus. It's like, okay, Jesus was tenor, James was bass or something like that. Like there's this, there's this harmony in how they preach. And we get, you know, a version of Jesus' sermons through James in ways that we don't often see in other New Testament writers. So we see this early letter, probably before any of Paul's letters. So this is like late 40s, early 50s, like the original 40s and 50s, you know. This is this is before Peter, Paul, and Mary. I mean the the original Peter, Paul, and Mary. Um, these sayings that are reiterating Jesus' teachings for those who are scattered through the Roman Empire. Let's look at what this says. If you've got scripture on a phone or in print form, I'm not going to project it. Probably good every once in a while to actually touch a Bible or to look at it in, you know, on your phone. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. So, we've got James identifying these Jewish believers in Messiah that are scattered is it, is it just to the Jewish believers or is it to all Christians? You know, Paul in Galatians or Peter in First Peter refer to the Gentiles as sort of the, the Israel of God or, you know, royal priesthood, holy nation. Not completely clear. Possibly he's just writing to those who are messianic believers in Jesus I'm not sure that the believers in the 40s and 50s were known as Christians yet at that time. They're like, well, there's the Pharisee sect and there's the Sadducees and the Essenes and there's the Jesus, you know. These are all sects of Judaism. So perhaps because this is so early, he's writing particularly to those who are Jewish believers And yet James, I think, is the same guy who in Acts 15 ends up settling a dispute. This might be a little bit after this letter. So maybe this is pre the first Jerusalem council, the first council of the church saying we've got to figure something out. Do Gentiles have to be circumcised? They have to follow the Judaic laws. And so the Pharisees within the Christian community and Paul and Barnabas and Peter are like wrestling with this question. And James, at the end of this dispute in chapter 15 of Acts, is like, no, here's some things that'd be good for them to abstain from, but like you don't have to be circumcised. That was a very critical moment in the history of the church. And so in, in Acts chapter 11, the, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch because this was a predominantly non 
Jewish community. This was on the edge of uh, sort of the Jewish, well into the Jewish diaspora who had been scattered. So we can't call them Jews anymore because there's lots of those who aren't following Judaism. What do we call them? Let's call them little Jesuses, Christians. And so I think I'm not far off the mark by saying that Christianity is really the first global faith. So a lot of faith, like Zoroastrianism, very much confined to Persia, you know, uh, Buddhism, grew up out of Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia, pretty well contained there. Judaism, amongst those who are related to the tribe, the, he- the Hebrew people. So, so faith communities really very much centered on a particular uh, socio-political, cultural group until Christianity. Yeah, Buddhists and uh, the Jewish believers had their missionaries. And of course, in the modern era, like, you know, everything is globalized. But I'm talking, you know, in the very beginning of the common era, faith communities were really relegated to one ethnic group, one socio-political group until Christianity. Then we get this this faith that begins taking on the shape and clothing of people of a variety of backgrounds and ethnicities and cultures. Not so much based on certain practices, but based on a person. Um, The faith now was not Jewish or Roman. It was scattered among the nations. Um, and so James is writing to some of the earliest Christians. This is one of the first letters that starts to move around. It's not to a particular community, unless perhaps those who are of Jewish faith that have adopted Christianity. Um, but he's writing to a pretty um, broad, dispersed community that didn't fit in, let's just say. So um, to Orthodox Jews, this was a cult. This was a step too far. Pharisees we can accept. Sadducees we can accept. This sect of Judaism, no. This is a cult. This is heresy. We reject it. So pressure from Orthodox Jewish community. And of course, for the Romans, uh, this was an aberration. Like there are acceptable sects. This wasn't one of them. In fact, anyone who couldn't say Caesar is Lord, you're in trouble. And then you go and replace the name of Caesar with this guy. I'm not sure how to create a functional equivalent for what it was like to say Jesus is Lord in that day. Possibly like a group like this gathering very publicly and burning an American flag. Like, okay, could you could get in trouble. This was a, I am not going to bow down to this citizenry of, I'm not going to pledge allegiance to, to Rome. My allegiance and citizenship is to Christ. I won't fight in your wars. I won't obey the things that you tell me to obey unless it doesn't interrupt the law of Christ. And so you could get into trouble by the Romans for saying Jesus is Lord or for refusing to say Caesar is Lord. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which gets some airtime here in James, just cuts against the grain of empire. So whether from Orthodox Jews, because Christianity is uh, grows out of, or some may say is part of Judaism, is fulfillment of Judaism, that the Messianic story is located in this. But this community uh, did not accept, by and large, this, this group, or the Romans. Like, you guys are just 
not doing the right thing. And so they got pressure from both sides. So how does this apply to us? Are we persecuted here? Well, yes and no. You know, I don't want to compare being a Christian in America to being a Christian in North Korea or something. The, the U.S. has the largest Christian population of any nation, you know, roughly two-thirds. It's a bit of a stretch to say Christians are persecuted in America. At the same time, there is a feeling of not fitting in, of being rejected, of some of this sociological misfit of being serious about your faith feels like persecution, um, or at least rejection. So yes and no. Um, we're, we're not experiencing what those believers in North Korea experiencing, but we are experiencing, if you're really serious about following Jesus, ways that you don't fit in, ways that you get written off, rejected, ignored by, by others. So there's a way in which we may identify with the kinds of um, dismissals that the early Christians James was writing to felt. Let's read on. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. Trials test our faith in the sense that it's harder to believe that God is good, that God sees me, that God answers prayer when I'm in pain, when I'm experiencing trials. That's the invitation to faith. Like, I want you, when you're under a trial, this is going to increase your potential to have faith, to believe that God is good, that God sees you. I've not had lots of trials. Some, you know, sickness, man, I I empathize with those who've, who deal with pain every day, emotional or physical, but I don't, I, I've not had that kind of trial. My job, you know, I've worked more or less at the same job my whole adult life. And there are some ways that opportunity costs or other things or, or just even the work of being in full-time Christian ministry has a different set of trials. But you know, it's, it's not like the same sort of trials that others have experienced. I've, I think I've had pretty good health history with some scares and pretty good, I don't know, success in my job. Where I feel the pinch of a trial right now is family and friends who have rejected the faith and in some ways rejected me. Or, you know, the church has been canceled by and large. That's the trial that I think those of us, maybe in the, in the U.S., even though we're like almost two-thirds professing Christians, there's ways in which the church has been canceled. And I feel that. I feel that amongst friends and family who've rejected the faith. And that's the sort of, am I wrong? Like, am I not understanding things correctly? That's where I feel like, God, are you, are you good? Do you answer prayer? Um, there's this, the, the rub for me. I feel a little lonely in the faith, that is. Like, not with you all or my work community, but within the larger society, my larger circle of friends and family, I feel lonely. Um, or I, I think I'm thought of as just a bit deceived, or I don't know, maybe that's too strong, but like the, the patting on the head isn't that cute, he still believes. <laughs> That, that does not feel good. I feel the trial of being dismissed, I guess. I feel the trial of being misunderstood. 
and it comes across to me as a form of rejection. Um, and so James is saying, I want you to think of that as joy. That feeling that you've been misunderstood or rejected even, that people think you're maybe foolish, at best a little bit cute for believing in me. Like that feeling of distance, embrace the joy of that. You know, consider this joy. And how do you hold that awareness, like become present to and think about, I'm thought of as a fool by people I really care about, and yet I'm sticking with it. It's not that I'm like, oh, I'm just plugging my ears. I'm trying to really consider you know, the deep questions of the faith, but deciding to stay with the faith, holding those two things together and saying, doesn't that feel good T to be thought of as a fool and to continue in what the world considers as folly? I feel that. It's like that sort of you're at the gym, you're working out, and it kind of doesn't feel good, but then it kind of does feel good. It's that sort of joy. That's the kind of joy. You're staying with the faith even when it's hard, even when you're experiencing trials of many kinds. Where have you felt the testing of your faith? Or maybe you feel a trial in unanswered prayer or some place that you're just really uncomfortable. Maybe you're physically dealing with an issue. And that's a trial for you. Where is your trial? I'd love for you to turn to a neighbor or to post in the comments section a place where you have in the past or you currently are experiencing a trial. This is a safe place to talk about that. Like if you can't talk about how you're struggling at church, like my goodness, where can you talk about that? Turn to a neighbor. No, no more than three, but you know, mostly one-on-one -on because -one, it's just going to be a short time. Where do you feel the trial or where have you felt the trial a trial. Maybe it's a trial of being a Christian. Take a moment. Share.
These are the kinds of things that force us to wrestle. We're not done yet. <laughs> There's too many trials going on here. Will you stop your belly aching? No, I'm kidding. This is the perfect place to talk about those struggles. It's, you know, muscle doesn't get built unless there's resistance. We're talking about building muscle. You know, when people talk about getting ripped, it's because the muscle tears at that resistance and then needs to grow more muscle to fill in the rip. Trials are, are getting you ripped spiritually. That resistance is actually healthy and like you feel when you've had a really good workout. That's how you should feel when you're undergoing a trial and you can still sing, blessed be the name on the road marked with suffering. That's muscle building. That's the kind of joy, not woohoo, I'm so excited that I'm experiencing difficulty, but like it feels good to work this muscle and I'm going to stick with Jesus. Though the world rejected, that the cross before me, the world behind me, like that's muscle building, that's spiritual muscle being, that's the joy, I think that James is talking about. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded, unstable in all they do. I think this connects because when you're undergoing hardship, I hope one of the impulses is, God, what in the world is going on here? That's a request for wisdom. We need wisdom, we need God's understanding, and it's not about God take me out of the situation, though I think that's an appropriate prayer, deliver me. I want to stand in this place and I'm feeling very uncomfortable. I've got a physical ailment that is not being healed, though I've appealed to you time after time. Help me to understand. It's an invitation to wrestle this request for wisdom. In the parable of the soils, Jesus just starts this story. There was a farmer. Starts scattering seed. And then these different things happen. And a number of people walked away after that like, oh, that was an interesting story, scratching their heads. The disciples stuck around, and in one of the Gospels, Jesus is like, I'm going to tell you the secret to this, because you stayed around to, to ask me what's going on here, to try to understand this. You weren't content just to sort of walk away thinking, hmm, that was weird, kind of interesting, don't know what that means, off to the fish market now. Like... What does this mean? I'm going to tell you what it means. They stuck with Jesus in their confusion, asking about the parable of the soils. You get the story of the patriarch Jacob wrestling with an angel. Most people, when they see angels, are freaked out. Jacob's like, you want to wrestle? Like, what is going on there? Like, It's obvious who's going to win this contest, but Jacob's like, I want you to bless me, and I'm willing to fight you. It's that sort of drive of, you know, uh, Greg Boyd, who's a 
pastor in the Twin Cities talks about Jacob wrestling with the angel or about hard things that happen. He says, when I wrestle with my three-year-old grandson, it's not really a contest, but there's a kind of beauty or intimacy. We get really close and we're, we're wrestling and there's this sort of give and take and there's some kind of special relationship that happens in wrestling. Asking God for wisdom because you're facing a difficulty is a form of intimacy. Being invited into a form of intimacy when you're asking God for wisdom. Proverbs 25.2 says, It's the glory of God to conceal them. It's the glory of God to make things unclear. It's the glory of kings to figure it out. There's some kind of beauty in God saying, I'm not going to give the whole answer here. I'm going to give signs. I'm going to give pictures. I want you to come at me and to try to figure this out. The, the earliest scientists were Christians who believed God put this universe together in an ordered way. When we figure out stuff about this universe, we're seeing something of God. There was a, a spiritual experience. Science was a spiritual discipline. It's wrestling with God, like the mysteries of God. The request for wisdom is a good thing, but but the double-minded is like, I'm only half-heartedly asking you about this thing because I'm not sure I really want to know the answer, especially if it doesn't agree with what I think the answer is. Double-mindedness is, God, I want you to answer this in a way that costs me nothing and that confirms what I already believe. I think that's what James is talking about when he talks about double-mindedness. I want an answer that costs me nothing, gives me everything. I remember really wrestling with God over not becoming a missionary. So I was a young guy, kid number two, van, January, Wisconsin. Like those are just things that like, I'm, I don't see this happening anytime soon. Janine and I had applied to a couple of mission agencies and not gotten accepted or on to the next thing. And so I was asking God about this. And the answer I got was, the problem is that you love my mission more than you love me. I didn't like that answer. It's like, oh, I don't think that's true. Mm, yeah, that's true. Like, what is it that drives you, that excites you? It's not me. You've got this sort of activist component that's fed. I want you to be an activist for knowing me and loving me because even my mission is rubbish in comparison to the surpassing greatness of just pursuing me. How about you try that? Why don't you make me your mission? Knowing me, loving me. Like whether you end up on the mission field or not, how about I worry about that and you worry about pursuing me? That was my sort of George Bailey moment. Have you ever heard of It's a Wonderful Life and George Bailey? George Bailey is stuck, wants to be this architect, and he's stuck in Bedford Falls. Madison, InterVarsity, that was my Bedford Falls. Like God saying, you really want to know what I think here? Because it's not what you think. That's the request for wisdom. Don't ask God for wisdom on a matter if you're not willing to hear that you're wrong, that you need to stay in that place that you're in, or even that you need to repent and think differently. That's a genuine request for wisdom when you are willing to hear the hard thing God may say. Otherwise, you're double-minded. Don't ask God until you can get to that place. Like, 
I'm willing to hear that I'm wrong, that I need to stay in this uncomfortable place, or that I even need to repent of something. That's the kind of request for wisdom that God always, always honors. Verses 9 through 11. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like wildflowers, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even when they go about their business. There are economic and social factors in the kingdom that are polar to the economic and social factors of the empire. Within empire, wealth uh, is centripetal or it is magnetic. And there's something called the Gini coefficient, which measures the top 10% uh, and the bottom 10%, and that distance keeps growing. And so uh, more and more wealth is shared by fewer and fewer people, essentially, is one of the laws of the economic laws of empire, is that wealth gets concentrated. In the kingdom, wealth is centrifugal, that is, it moves out to the margins. The, the social powers and, and forces of the empire push people to the margins. The social powers of the kingdom bring marginalized people into the center. So we've got these sort of different forces acting, and James is, is recognizing the ways in which Oftentimes, not always, people benefit economically by marginalizing others. Like the, the, you are rewarded for increasing prices to their highest place and decreasing wages to their lowest place. Like there's incentive to do that. And so wealth can grow especially in first century Roman Empire, through exploitation. It was just a great wealth generator. And also wealth has this ability to insulate you from needing God. Your wealth is your safety net, not God. Um, Francis of Assisi, and a brother are walking by an ornate cathedral. And the brother says to Francis, the church can no longer say silver and gold, have I not? Francis says, neither can she say rise, take your mat and walk. There are ways that wealth becomes a spiritual handicap. And James is saying, I want you to recognize that you're at a disadvantage, you rich. Those of you without wealth are kind of at an advantage. It's a different way of looking at wealth than uh, the Roman Empire has taught you to look at wealth. It's not that you can't be a solid person of faith. It's just that you're going to have a bit of a handicap because the tendency to rely on your wealth is just going to be so great. Friends of mine, Aaron and Emma Smith, live in Manila. Aaron grew up in a middle-class family. Emma grew up in a slum community in Manila. Emma has chosen to remain in a slum community. Aaron has chosen to migrate to a slum community. They've raised their family in a very, very difficult, to me, place and learn to make it beautiful. And there's a kind of simplicity and beauty to their faith. You will have never heard of them. And they will not be Christian celebrities. 
And yet there is a simplicity and beauty in their faith in choosing for Aaron downward mobility. Probably Emma has achieved a certain stability, financially even, living in a slum, being married to Aaron. And I do believe that those who have been marginalized economically for generations, their quest is financial stability. And I think there's something beautiful and solid about that. So it's sometimes hard or unfair to preach downward mobility for people who have been in that place for generations and excluded economically. There is an invitation to stability without the um, excessive indulgence of wealth. Many of us, though, need to see um, that wealth can be a handicap. That's what I believe James is challenging here. Um, And then in verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Your trial may be that wealth has made it easy not to trust God. Persevere. Learn to trust God even with that safety net in place. That's hard to do. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised those who love him. Don't throw the towel in. Whether your trial is an illness, whether your trial is feeling rejected, um, whether the trial is having more money than you need, that is a trial. Persevere. Stick with it. Stay in the faith. Because there's a crown. There is a blessedness. There's a reward to staying in the faith. When tempted, verse 13, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. I would guess all of us experience unfulfilled desire. All of us experience desire that is outside the bounds of what's good and right and healthy. Money's one of those. Sex is one of those. Power is one of those. Like in and of themselves, there's beauty and goodness to money, sex, and power. But they are an incredible source of beckoning us beyond what is good for us. I want attention sometimes. I want to look good to others. Well, God made us to be in relationship, like to have good, to love and be loved. But there are times where it's like, ah, I just don't like how I look. I wish I could do this or that. And I start piddling with the hair or whatever, And like my decision not to color or whatever, it's like I need to resist what I feel like for me crosses into vanity or crosses into this desire that's like something else there than simply wanting to present myself well. So there's this good thing and then there's this fuzzy line. Like, okay, where is is this coming out of maybe some brokenness? Where wanting to look good overrides actually being good. Um, Food. There's one. My my sister makes these dirt balls. Essentially crushed up Oreo cookie formed into a ball and covered in chocolate. And the first dirt ball is a celebration of God's goodness. (laughs) It's a recognition that God gave us taste buds. It's a worship experience. The first dirt ball is worship. The second dirt ball 
Yeah, I'm still present to how God has made things good. Thank you for dirt balls. It's the third dirt ball where it's like, okay, desire. Hey, God, you gave me desire to eat. Like that's, that's part of how I made. (laughs) I don't think God made me for the third dirt ball. And wrestling with that desire, which comes out of a good place, but carries me into a not so good place and knowing where that line is and saying, no, man, that is a spiritual battle. Any kind of desire that you have, there will be an impulse to move into an unhealthy place with that desire. You're able to to rationalize and justify because, oh, God, you made me this way, and this is good. This desire comes out of a good thing. This is how I'm made. There's a line. Money, you know, I feel that clinging. Oh, money's good. Thank you. It's made for sharing. I like to share this. Oh, I might need this. I better hold this more tightly. Ooh, there's something there that's not healthy. Our desires exceed our needs. And our first parents, our ancient parents, saw this fruit and it it was pleasing to the eye it was good for food and it was desirable for gaining wisdom and yet there was a boundary there yes i see it's good for food i see it's pleasing to the eye i know it's wisdom is desirable i don't want you to have that How do we wrestle with the fact that God sets limits on desires that start out as good, but our desires exceed those limits? God, why is the line there? God says, I've put the line in wonderful places. The boundary line is a beautiful thing. It doesn't feel very beautiful to me. I feel desire. And by the way, you gave that to me. (laughs) No, this is a good line. Yes, I see that. Yes, I did give that to you. Within the boundary lines have fallen pleasantly. Will you trust me? I think is the invitation that James is giving. Like (laughs) desire is going to try. Desire is good and then it's going to go into this place that's a very bad place you're going to trust god that the limits that don't seem to make much sense to you right now are good the desires are not an excuse to indulge them outside god's limit and often they'll lack immediate consequence adam and eve did not die when they bit in like Immediate consequences are great for curbing those sorts of things, but when you don't have them immediately, in fact, maybe there's immediate pleasure, that becomes a real, that's, that's a real business to work, to work out. Um, but how else can you explore your woundedness if you're not willing to sort of say, why am I wanting that third dirt ball or this thing that I know as I understand from uh, the, the community of faith is not healthy. Why is that? Why do I particularly gravitate toward That's an invitation to wisdom, which is what James had just talked about. Finally, 16 through 18. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Limits are gifts. Trials are gifts. 
lacking wisdom and wrestling with God, that is a gift. You don't know something. You're hungry to know it. That's a gift and an invitation. Wealth and wrestling with it and living in empire, like those are gifts from God. And when you're facing hardship, you need to reframe and ask, hmm, what's God's good gift and invitation to me in this space of feeling rejected, dealing with pain, being on the outside, or feeling like I, I don't get something, I need to know something. Is there a gift you have for me in this? Maybe I need to be challenged in what I think about the matter. Some of the Christian friends I made maybe 30 years ago have, it feels like, this is an overstatement, it feels like either they have left the faith or that they've become extreme Christian nationalists or something, like they've gone to one of two extremes. I feel alone, like, no, neither of those are good choices for me. What's it mean to stay the course with Jesus? That feels like a trial to me, connecting with people who were solid 30 years ago. What about saying no to that dirt ball, third one, or to looking good because I want the attention? How can I frame that as getting ripped? spiritually by saying no or leaning into the thing that I need to do that doesn't feel good or resisting that desire that's outside of what's good. And how can I say, I bless your name on the road marked with suffering. That's that spiritual resistance that you're building muscle for. There's an invitation to embracing God's goodness, even if the trial continues, even if the wisdom God offers me is difficult to hear, even if the temptation grows out of a desire that's good but crosses a limit that God set. When you say, I still believe you're good, I'm going to trust you in this. There's spiritual health coursing through your soul. Take a moment right now as we close. Where's that place where you're going to tell God, I trust you, even in this hard thing? I trust you. You can even say, I want to trust you but I don't right now. You can even say, I want to want to trust you. God honors the want to want to. Where is it? We're staying the course. We're saying God is good for telling God I trust you in this feels like there's resistance there. Become present to that. Recognize it. God, though there's pain in the offering, we give you that conviction that you're good and that we trust you as our act of worship this morning.